0: You're listening to americaswebradio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: Good afternoon and welcome to America's Web Radio and the Greg Williams, uh, Greg List show, as a matter of fact, and sitting in for Greg is Lee Ward today. Uh, Greg's taking a little vacation. Uh, didn't invite us to go, but uh, I assume he's, he's doing well in Europe or wherever he, uh, whatever parts he winds up in. I'm sure he's having a good time, and we wish him well. Lee, welcome to America's Web Radio, the roundtable, and you've got some interesting guests lined up for a latter part of the show. So I'm going to turn it over to you and and let you run with the uh, the Greg's list.
2: Thanks very much, David. My name is Lee Weber. I've known Greg Weber, for a number I of said years. Ward. You said I'm, Ward. Yeah, I'm that's, sorry, all, right. that's ward. all right. That's all right. That's all right. So it is Lee Weber, and uh, I've been a long term friend of Greg's and a listener to the show, and I've appeared on it at least one or two times. Uh, Greg is over in Italy traveling. Um, So we're going to do a couple things today. I'm going to talk, I was planning on talking uh, about Donald Trump in the first segment, but considering the uh, press conference that FBI Director James Comey had today at 11 o'clock regarding Hillary Clinton's email server, we'll do a little bit of that. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, my experiences in the Middle East uh, and my familiarity with Islam. Uh, My opinions on ISIS. Uh, We'll have, as our first guest, uh, talking mainly about Donald Trump and a little bit about the Hillary issue, Brad Carver. Brad is the chairman of the Republican Party for the 11th congressional district here and will be a delegate to the convention in Cleveland, which starts in just 13 days. Uh, Then in the second half of the show, when I uh, plan on talking about ISIS in the Middle East, uh, we'll have Doug Teeper. Uh, Doug is a very, very good and old friend of mine. I've known Doug uh, more than 30 years. Doug served, I believe, six terms in the Georgia House of Representatives, is now an adjunct professor at Georgia State, and spent three years in northern Iraq working with the Kurds, setting up their government immediately after the Iraq War. At that time, he was working for the State Department. So Doug will have some interesting insight on what's happening in northern Iraq, uh, ISIS, the Kurds, Islam in general, and what's going on in that part of the world, and what he saw when he was there. Uh, But I want to talk first a little bit about the Hillary email scandal, Uh, and I'm going to talk about it in a a way that I think will be different from what you're seeing, what I've already seen this morning on uh, social media. Uh, You've got... The left uh, wing and Hillary supporters, or let's say Hillary supporters, possibly not Bernie Sanders supporters, but you've certainly got Hillary supporters. They're going to c- claim this is a complete vindication of her on this email server situation. Uh, then I've already seen a number of tweets and Facebook posts and posts in other places where the right is claiming that the fix is in, uh, that the FBI was on the team all all along. Uh, that the investigation went off the rails somewhere, and, of course, you've got Donald Trump tweeting that the fix is in. Um, I'm going to take a little bit different view of this. Um, I'm relatively familiar with James Comey. He actually is an alma uh, alumni from my alma mater, the College of William & Mary in Virginia, and I saw him speak there last year. Um, and between that and I have actually friends who work both at the DOJ, uh, Department of Justice in Washington, and in, in high-level positions, as well as friends in the FBI. And and I can assure you that I have no doubt whatsoever that the FBI investigation was above board and was thoroughly complete. And any referral to the DOJ, regardless of what had happened between former President Clinton and Attorney General Loretta Lynch on the tarmac in, uh, I believe it was Phoenix, last week, uh, I believe the FBI investigation was above board and done in a thorough manner. Uh, you could hear from the brief 14-minute statement that Comey made that the FBI not only went through the emails they were given, uh, but they also accessed for the first time we discovered that, that Hillary Clinton and her staff had used multiple servers. And for the first time we saw that uh, the FBI actually identified servers that had gone, they had taken out of commission and put in other places. They also were able to access emails that uh, Clinton did not release to the FBI or to the State Department when she did, her lawyers did the review of the 55,000 emails and released about 30,000 back to the government. The FBI was able to track down some others they were not given by the Clinton, by Hillary Clinton or her staff, and look at those as well. And, and what we saw was uh, a problem for Hillary Clinton in that she has consistently asserted that she never uh, forwarded, read, replied to, any emails which were marked classified or any higher classifications, including top secret and a classification even above that that's the highest security level that are assigned to government email information. So obviously uh, what she said regarding that is not true. Um, what we do see and, and what the right is going to be upset about and continue to be upset about is the fact that we're not seeing a referral from the FBI calling for an indictment. Um, that is understandable for a couple of reasons, and I'll go through those. Um, number one, you have to recognize that the FBI, of course, doesn't actually indict or prosecute anyone. They make a recommendation to the prosecutor as to what path they think the evidence should lead to. And in this case, the FBI looked at what they had and decided there was not enough there for an indictment. I don't believe this is a political decision for a couple of reasons. One, Comey is known as a very stand-up, by-the-book, law-and-order guy. So I don't see any political influence having any impact on his decision. But he also has to look at the evidence and make a decision based on past cases as well as on the likelihood of a conviction. And in, in terms of past cases, a lot of folks have brought up the situation with General David Petraeus um, in that case, the FBI recommended a felony prosecution, and uh, Attorney General at the time, Eric Holder, uh, dropped that down to a misdemeanor to which Petraeus did plead guilty. Now, one of the reasons that that happened was because Petraeus actually showed intent because he printed out government information and gave them to someone, his then girlfriend and uh, author of his, or co author of his autobiography. Um, there was an intent there to give away classified information. In this situation, the FBI did not find any intent on Hillary Clinton's part. Now, there are two different statutes that govern this, and one does call clearly for intent. So I think that Comey looked at that and said, either there was not any intent, or we're not going to be able to prove intent, and therefore that gives him a problem in recommending an indictment. More importantly, really, is that uh, if As Comey looks at this evidence, he's going to look at it and he's going to say, are we likely to get a prosecution? Now, the feds, I have a friend who is a long-term federal prosecutor. I believe he's lost one case in his career. Um, one of the differences between state and local prosecutors and the f- and federal prosecutors is the feds rarely lose. I mean, they go to court and prosecute pretty much when they feel like they've got a 90 percent chance of winning or at a minimum of getting a plea bargain so that they can put someone in jail or fine them or punish them in some way for any malfeasance. In this case, I think Comey looked at past cases, and he also looked at uh, the likelihood of a conviction and said, we're just not going to get those. Now, that doesn't let Hillary Clinton off the hook in any way, shape, or form um, from a political standpoint, Uh, for the aforementioned reason that she has consistently asserted things that were not true. She's asserted that she didn't forward or or reply to anything classified. That's not true. She asserted she turned everything over to the State Department and the FBI. We know that's not true. Um, In this case, as far as, again, going back to Comey's recommendation of the prosecutors, whether to charge or not. One of the things I think you have to recognize is that there were 20,000 emails that were missing. So you've got a situation where most likely uh, either Clinton and her staff or her lawyers, as they went through those emails and supposedly pulled out all the ones about yoga and about daughter's wedding and these other things, they may have destroyed or hidden some emails which might have led to a logical indictment And a prosecution. So, you know, I'm kind of going down the middle on this thing and that it's my belief that Comey very much thought she did something wrong, very much wanted to recommend an indictment, but didn't have the evidence to do so or the past history of other cases to do so. Now, the next question, and this will come up when we talk to Brad, is um, is what is the Trump campaign going to do with this? And I think in this situation, uh, Trump is already trying with the fixes in to appeal to Bernie Sanders supporters um, that he hopes he can drag over to his side for the general election. I think he's also ginning up his base and the general anti-Hillary crowd, and all that's understandable. Um, It seems to me it would be more reasonable for Trump at this point to be concentrating strictly on what James Comey said, uh, because Comey's statement knocks out two of the three legs, or at least one of the three legs on which Hillary Clinton's candidacy stands. I mean, it stands on competence, experience, and foreign policy. I mean, I think those are the three substantive points that that Clinton is arguing on. Well, as far as competence goes, she's got a real problem when you've got the FBI director using words like unnecessarily uh, careless with classified information, They should have known that this, uh, that this information was classified. In particular, you've got the situation where Comey said it is possible that foreign powers access this information because she used. This private email system overseas, and as he implied, even when she would have been traveling in China or the Middle East or other places around the world where folks very much want access to our classified information. He also pointed out that not only was the system not secure by government standards, but it was less secure than the Gmail account that I use every day for my business and personal reasons. Uh, So she's got some significant problems here, and Trump would be wise to maybe back down on the rhetoric as usual and fire up a little bit on exactly what Comey said and look at that information and see where we go from here. So you're going to see, I I don't know if you'll actually see the Trump campaign directly use Comey's statements in commercials, but you're going to see a lot of super PACs and a lot of advertising as we go into the fall campaign talking about how can Hillary Clinton, who as Secretary of State, was careless with classified information and used an email system less secure than the Gmail that most Americans use every day is. How can she continue to argue that she's, that her experience and her level of competence will make a difference and, and you know, deserve, give her the chance uh, or, or draw votes to her to be President of the United States? Um, I think probably Hillary's campaign is going to take the same approach that they have with most of the scandals over her 25 years in public life, and that is, it's time to move on, this is over, there was no issue here, it was a Republican witch hunt. That's going to be a difficult case to make. So we'll have to see how uh, how Hillary's campaign responds on this, but I think they'll quickly pivot um, probably to some attacks again on Trump and then back again uh, arguing that her 25 years in public service and her experience as Secretary of State make her the best candidate for president. And we'll get into a little bit of that. Uh, Doug is a, uh, a liberal Democrat, and uh, I don't know whether he was a Hillary or a Bernie supporter, um, but we'll get a little bit of, of insight from him on on her competence as Secretary of State. Uh, And what areas of the world the U.S. is better off in after her six years in the position, um, particularly in the Middle East and with the rise of ISIS. Uh, This morning, there were a number of foreign policy notables on uh, Morning Joe on MSNBC, and among them was um, Jeffrey Sachs. And Jeffrey Sachs is an old foreign policy hand who runs a think tank in New York City. And although he's going to vote for Hillary, he said that her foreign policy experience had been an unmitigated disaster and that nothing she had done had improved the situation anywhere around the world. Now, of course, when pushed, what he said was, well, I can't vote for Trump because he's just too unstable, which is an interesting case to make. I've been, one of the things I want to talk to Brad about briefly is um, I've been reading a lot of old Reagan biographies and was recently watching a uh, Reagan retrospective on CNN. And uh, one of the things that we're going to talk about is not necessarily is Donald Trump Ronald Reagan, but is the reaction of the press and the reaction of some moderates in the Republican Party uh, similar to the reaction you saw toward Reagan in his campaign for the presidency in 1980. Uh, so we'll have Brad coming up shortly, and then we'll talk to
3: deeper about the Middle East. Whether cruising the Strip at a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Your auto love and investment demands the best, and for 45 years, Passport Transport has been meeting those demands. From manufacturers to the one-car collectors and all other facets of the auto industry and antique auto hobby. The first and the finest with unequaled service and peace of mind. Passport Transport, your auto transportation company. Contact PassportTransport.com with your need today. Passport Transport.
1: Obamacare is failing, but in order to get back on the right track with health policy, people need to be informed. Obamacarewatch.org is your resource to understand what's happening with this law and what you can do to stay active, stay informed, and make positive change happen. Obamacarewatch.org. Visit us now.
4: On call.org or call toll free 1 800 714 6993 today.
0: You're listening to America's Webradio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
2: I'm Lee Weber sitting in today, today for uh, Greg Williams on Greg's List Live. Uh, I was talking earlier a little bit about the Hillary Clinton email scandal and pivoted just slightly toward what the Trump campaign strategy might be in responding to this. Uh, I also want to talk uh, just a little bit about what may happen at the convention. So I've asked my, my old friend Brad Carver to call in. Uh, Brad is the chairman of the uh, Georgia Republican Party in the 11th Congressional District and will be a delegate to Cleveland in the convention, which starts in just 13 days. Uh, hey, Brad, how are you?
5: I'm doing great, Lee. Good to talk to you. Good
2: to talk to you. Good to talk to you. Well, I was going to do uh, most of the show or the first half of the show today on Trump, uh, but with the press conference today at 11 o'clock, I'm sure you've seen at least some of the details from that. Yes, sure have. Well, why don't you give me your reaction? I know that you uh, have been uncommitted, uh, unlike many of uh, Republicans in the state of Georgia. You remained uncommitted uh, all the way through the primary process, uh, unless I'm mistaken, up until uh, Trump became the presumed nominee. Is that correct?
5: Yeah, that's that's correct. I did take my job as a congressional district chairman very seriously and and wanted to make sure that my my vote was private, um, because at the end of the day, I, I wanted to support whoever our nominee was. Uh, I will tell you that, that uh, I did vote for Marco Rubio, and I actually wound up being a, uh, a Marco Rubio delegate who uh, uh, actually came close to winning Fulton County and, and won the uh, Buckhead Atlanta area where I live overwhelmingly. So I feel good being in that position going up to Cleveland and will do do what I need to do on the first ballot, which is to cast my vote uh, for Marco Rubio. But, uh, but I am backing Trump. Uh, I'm, I'm with him. I, I'm Came uh, went to his fundraiser when he came to town and maxed out to him and then went to the rally at the at the fox theater and i'm i'm with him 100 percent now and 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 I, I feel my job is to is to continue to try to bring folks on board to unite our party and i, I think if we can get uh 90 of the republicans on board he'll win the independence and i think we can win in november
2: well, well now that you are on the on the trump train uh, let me ask you what you think his response should be uh, of course uh, FBI director Comey is going to not recommend an indictment. Uh, but he did have quite a few things to say during his 14-minute press conference. He took no questions, but he did have some things to say, which I would think would give some ammunition to the Trump campaign uh, as we move into the general election in the fall. If if you were advising Donald Trump directly, uh, what would you advise him to do with, with what happened today at this press conference?
5: Well, I, I think this is a is a pivotal issue. I think it goes to the heart and soul of of, of what the attacks on the Hillary Clinton campaign are, and, and Hillary Clinton herself. Uh, it is it is her honesty. it is It is her uh, her her, her uh, integrity. Those are the issues that, frankly, the American people are are not comfortable with her uh... the polling on her in terms of her trustworthy factor has been dropping and dropping and then right now it is at the lowest point uh... That ever been and so there is a, a a a super majority of folks in the country and that's even including democratic voters that are going to wind up voting for her that don't find her trustworthy and i think that this issue is going to continue to be one that plagues her because uh... there are a lot of open questions about what she was trying to do and, and circumventing the uh, uh, FOIA, Freedom of Information Act, uh, is, is just one example of that. So, yes, I do think that this, uh, this will provide a lot of ammunition to the Trump campaign to, a, to, to use the issue... In a, in a situation where the American people already find the Clinton family very
2: untrustworthy. Right. I think that number this morning was 66%, which means two-thirds of American voters don't find her honest and trustworthy. But, it, you know, it's, it's kind of the converse of the Trump situation. It doesn't matter what he says or whatever outrageous rhetoric he uses at times, it doesn't seem to budge his voters off of uh, him as a candidate. Uh, and you kind of see the same thing with, with the Hillary voters. So uh, if you look at Comey's statement this morning, I don't know if you had a chance to see all of it, but the the, the carelessness, uh, he used the word careless, and uh, also the, the fact that he believes it was possible was the word he used, uh, that foreign powers may have hacked into that. How would you take that? Uh, that statement uh, specifically around this issue? Or what around this issue specifically do you think you could make the case to a Hillary voter to change his or her mind and decide to vote for Donald Trump?
5: Well, I, I just would say uh, I would encourage a Hillary voter or somebody that's leaning to Hillary to say, look, you, you need to look at the history of these national security uh, and and intelligence questions and, and the uh, classification system that we use and how we have treated folks in, in the past for mishandling such classified information, uh, you should really look at that and then look at how she was treated uh, in this situation, and I think it would raise some pretty serious questions in their mind. And then, of course, you bring up the issue of, of what exactly is out there in terms of our enemies or uh, folks and what they've been able to, to, to uh hack into and get, uh, it's, 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 it's quite scary if you look at it.
2: Yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt. Well, Let's talk about the convention a little bit. Uh, Mark Halperin, who's one of my favorite political writers and commentators, has a 6 p.m. show on MSNBC with John Heilman. Uh He's a very bright and interesting guy. He leans, you know, a little to the left, uh, but mainly he's just an astute observer. And about, I think it was about four weeks ago, I saw him and he said, I have no evidence to believe this is true. But he said, I'm getting this very odd feeling that one of the two presumptive nominees will not end up being the nominee by the time we get past the conventions. And obviously, I think what he was implying is, you know, on on Hillary's side was exactly what happened today. Of course, if Comey had decided to recommend an indictment, it would have without a doubt been the end of her candidacy. Because while she has uh, a, a number of pledged delegates, she does not have a majority ...of pledged delegates. She needs those superdelegates, needed them, to put her over the top, so she gets indicted, the superdelegates defect, and and she's finished. Now she appears to obviously be safe and will be uh, the, the Democratic nominee, which means that that leaves... Trump is the only potential presumptive nominee who might not make it through his convention. And, and of course, we've seen the, the Stop Trump folks have been a, around for a while, and I think about 10 days ago there was talk of something like maybe 300 delegates who were trying to put together a movement. And I think that the the vehicle, and this is getting kind of down on the weeds of, of dorky convention stuff, but on the Rules Committee, if they could get a minority report, uh, out of the rules committee which would go to the floor for a vote before any balloting took place there was the possibility that delegates could be freed up on the first ballot to you know quote unquote vote their conscience and, and of course they're hoping to stop trump now do you see any have you talked to anybody do you see any indication through your network and i know you know folks across the country involved in republican politics do you see any of this happening And you think there's any chance whatsoever the Stop Trump folks will be able to stop him at the convention in Cleveland?
5: I I do not. I really don't. And, and yes, I have some contacts across the country, but I'll tell you specifically uh, what I know about Georgia. First of all, we're, we're bound under Georgia state law. And, and that is exactly what uh, we uh, sign a pledge to do. We are to go and we are supposed to follow the voters in our particular districts. And of course, as we know, even though uh, Marco Rubio won my particular area and, and, and Cobb County and Fulton County, um, you know, at, at the end of the day, the state went uh, overwhelmingly uh... for donald trump and he won the lion's share of our delegates and and that's where they're going to be so i i really don't see that i mean when you gave that uh... characterization to begin with uh, of course my mind uh... went to hillary and 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 i think i think you have summed it up correctly she is their nominee and that and that's not going to change but on our side i don't see it either I, i think that what you'll find i mean not everybody's on board but uh... but they haven't been with other republican candidates in the past either Right Donald right. Trump, at the end of the day is going to have a the significant majority and I think Approaching ninety percent, or even above, uh, Republican support, which will put him in line with where our candidates usually are uh, when we when we get to this this stage. And so I'll say this: I, you know, I know, uh, you know, we had seventeen candidates. There was a lot of passion that I saw. I witnessed it at our own congressional district convention. Um, but at the end of the day, most of those Cruz supporters even uh, are now on board with Trump and they are supporting the nominee because. <laughs> Folks have to remember this, that, that Cruz had overwhelming backing of uh, folks in the grassroots. These are people that have been plowing in the Republican Party fields for many, many years, and they know how this works. And when we get to a nominee, people come back together and support the eventual nominee, and that's exactly what we're seeing. Is it true in every case? No. Is it going to be 100% in Georgia? Probably not. But right. uh, but at the end of the day, I think we're going to have uh, most everybody there, and I think that same thing is going to play out uh, across
1: all fifty states.
2: Okay. Well, let, let's pivot quickly to the to the Veep stakes. Um, my my contention generally is that uh, a vice presidential I think the days when a vice presidential candidate could could bring you a state you needed are well past. Uh, that was I think the last time that really worked was when uh, Jack Kennedy picked uh, picked Lyndon Johnson and got Texas, and I don't I don't think a Veep candidate can particularly help you. I do think it can hurt you. Um, I, I was—I've been shocked in the years since by the number of people who told me. They would have voted for McCain, and these people by and large were moderate Republicans, uh, but just were so turned off by Sarah Palin that they they decided to vote for Obama instead so as I look at it, and I know you're personally very close to Newt Gingrich um, it seems to me we've got we've got newt we've got Chris Christie, and then, as of late, you've heard uh, Mike Pence, the Governor of Indiana, and uh, Senator Bob Corker from Tennessee, uh, probably is the top four right now trump is considering uh we we've got about three or four minutes here um give me your thoughts on each each briefly what they might bring to the ticket or do you think any of them could could would would be a bad pick
5: well i would say those the ones you said and then i would add uh joni Ernst to the to the list. right i did well. see
2: she's been she's been talked to recently right
5: yeah, Yes, so you know, at the end of the day, I don't think that she has had enough experience. I mean, at the end of the day, we, we know what he said. He said, I, I'm the business executive. I've been in the business world. I know how the business world works. What I'm looking for is somebody that knows how to get things done in Washington, D.C. And if you look at it from that criteria, to me, the two that really emerge are Mike Pence and uh, Newt Gingrich. Uh, I, I, I love Chris Christie, and at the end of the day, I, I see him making a fantastic Attorney General. I think he will be wonderful in that role. One, I don't think, I know you've talked about geography and, and things to add, but a New York, New Jersey ticket, uh, there's there's 48 other states, and right. those are neighboring states in the Northeast. Right. So, you know, Mike Pence in terms of the Midwest, that's big. And he certainly has uh, D.C. experience, plus plus being a governor and executive. I think he would be strong. But but to me, you've already said it, I was a strong supporter of Newt Gingrich when he ran for president. Uh, I I support him wholeheartedly. And I think that uh, he would be a terrific vice president. If not that, Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State. um, But I, I really think he would be a good team uh, as a vice president, I right. think that he and uh, I, I really think he is able to to advise Donald Trump, right? And, right, and Donald Trump can be the executive. That makes and that at makes the day. New uh, can get it done in Washington. That makes that
2: makes an awful lot of sense, Brad. I really appreciate you calling in. Thank you for your time. We'll be right back after a couple announcements. Sounds good. Thank you. Cheers.
1: On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Are your health insurance premiums going up? You are not alone. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org to understand why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. This is Grace Marie Turner, president of the Galen Institute. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org.
3: The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.atlantahealingcenter.com. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation Find out more at
0: www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like.
4: This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
2: This is Lee Weber. I'm sitting in for my friend Greg Williams today on Greg's List Live. In our first segment, we talked a little bit about the Hillary email situation and the announcement today that she will not be indicted or the fbi will not make a recommendation to the department of justice for indictment and then we talked to brad carver who's a delegate uh to the republican convention in cleveland uh about the possibility of a stump tr- a stop tr- stop trump movement succeeding there he said N- chances Pretty much nil, as well as uh, his thoughts on the vice presidential race uh, he 's looking strongly toward uh, toward Newt Gingrich or possibly Mike Pence of Indiana. But I want to pivot a little bit because in the last four or five days we 've had i think five or six significant uh ISIS terrorist actions around the world we had the Bangladesh situation in Bangladesh uh we have had in something in Java today I believe and over the weekend we had three bombings in Saudi Arabia one of them in Medina uh, actually at the mosque where supposedly uh Muhammad the Prophet is buried Um, I've got a little bit of experience. Uh, I've traveled to the Middle East a little bit and uh, have have done an awful lot of reading about this over the years. And I've been involved in a couple of interesting discussions on social media recently with some folks who I greatly respect, um, but whom uh, we've had some significant uh, arguments and debates over uh, the roots of ISIS and exactly what's going on. And I I, I tend to get into it with both folks on the right and on the left. And I'll kind of tell you, my personal history of and knowledge of Islam uh, as well as of the Middle East um, I, I think probably the first time uh, I significantly uh, in- encountered or traveled to a majority Muslim country was in 1997. Uh, my closest friend lived in Moscow for 10 years. I was there visiting him. And it was during a long weekend where most folks go out of town. And uh, we were looking for somewhere to go. And, and all of the, uh, the the republics in Russia, the stands, uh, all the flights were booked. Uh, the flights were booked to Egypt. The flights were booked to Israel. I was back at his apartment. He was at work. He called me and said, uh, hey, man, let's, let's go to Beirut. And I laughed and said, yeah, right, you know, like, we're, we're going we're to go Be- Beirut. He said, no, no, seriously, I just talked to some Brits. They were just there. They had a great time. Um, now, my friend had travel- has traveled widely around the world as part of his business, um, and I trusted his judgment, and uh, he said, look, it's, it's safe. Uh, things are very mellow there. This is about six months after the Israelis had pulled out of southern Lebanon, so it was uh, a time when when Beirut was at peace. There was no shelling. There was no fighting going on anywhere in the area. So we've... We hopped a flight and went down there and spent three or four days and had a, a tremendous time. Um, the first day at the time, Beirut was still a divided city, city. and By that I mean there was literally what they call the Green Line, uh, which was both a green line on a map as well as painted down the middle of the street in green uh, that separated the Christian from the Muslim parts of the city. And we went down to uh, to the Christian just on the Christian side of the Green Line and started walking around and got very close to the American Union University at Beirut, which is was somewhat infamous at the time. A number of professors, in fact, the president of of the American University there, had been kidnapped and held by Hezbollah for a number of years. Um, and we ended up walking across the Green Line and through the Muslim section. And, and interestingly enough. Everything changed dramatically. Instead of shops and activity in the streets and economic activity, uh, this was essentially a a slum. Uh, Most of the women uh, were dressed in the black and the abaya. There were posters of mullahs on the walls. uh, But no one hassled us, and we just calmly walked through that section of the city down to the Mediterranean and then back up the Corniche, uh, back over toward where our hotel was. Um, That night we went out and uh, ended up in an 800-year-old crusader castle that had now become a, a local bar. Uh, drinking with some of the locals at, and it's fascinating conversation with a father and son who had fought for militias on opposite sides in the war, which had just recently gone into ceasefire. So it was very interesting. And the next morning, I woke up, and that's the first time I heard the prayer to uh, the call to prayer from the local mosque, booing out over the loudspeaker right outside my hotel uh, at the Marriott. Um, so we had no problems there whatsoever. Um, a couple of years later, I again went back to Russia to visit my friend. I actually, was best man at his wedding. Uh, The bride was Russian Orthodox. The groom was a lapsed Catholic. uh, I'm a Protestant, and the maid of honor was a a Muslim. Uh, At that same trip, I was doing some business, and I ended up hiring a translator. Uh, He was a a buriat, which is an ethnic group uh, which is down on the steps of southern Russia, also was a Muslim. So in my four four or five trips to Russia, where I spent, at times, weeks, uh, I encountered an awful lot of of, of Russian Muslims that resemble nothing like ISIS whatsoever. I was in Beirut actually again two years ago about this time uh, for a wedding and spent four or five days there, wandered the city freely, uh, interacted with many number of people. So I, what I'm driving at is that, is I've been having this argument with people about whether the route of the violence we're seeing around the world is 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 Islam or is ISIS. And, and my contention is it's ISIS. If we had taken the steps 4 or 5 years ago to destroy ISIS, we wouldn't have had Paris, we wouldn't have had Brussels, we wouldn't have had San Bernardino. And and a lot of this gets into a discussion as to what we could have done or what we should be doing more of now. And one of the things we certainly should have done and should do more of now is arming the Kurds in northern Iraq. Now, the Kurds are the largest ethnic minority on the planet that does not have its own homeland. And they've been fighting the Turks primarily, but also the Iraqis for many years um, uh, to establish that homeland. Um, one of the reasons the Turkish border was open is because of their desire to continue to fight the Kurds and the Kurds have... Uh, do have a group that has attacked the Turkish military and police in Turkey. So because the Kurds are a critical component of this entire solution to ISIS in Iraq and also peripherally in Syria, I've asked my, uh, my friend Doug Teeper, who I've known for 30 years, uh, to join us. Doug uh, was a state representative here in Georgia uh, for eight terms. Uh, is a professor at Georgia State now, but he spent three years in northern Iraq working for the State Department with the Kurds, developing their own government. Are you with us, Doug?
1: Yes, I am, Lee. Good to hear you.
2: Good to hear you, buddy. How are you?
1: Great, great. Down here at St. Simons Island, Georgia.
2: Fantastic, fantastic. Well, well, give us just briefly, tell us you know, where you were in Iraq and what your job was with the State Department, and then let's talk about uh, the Kurds and what they've done there and what we should be doing to help them out.
1: The backstory story is that when the United States was at war, both in Afghanistan and in Iraq, um, they came up with this concept to try to fight these kind of insurgencies. Um, to simplify it, uh, you're basically you try to kill the bad guys and you try to help the good guys. And you hope you know which is which, which is not always easy. Um, I was hired as a specialist. They called me a governance specialist. And uh, I was trained up in, um, in northern Virginia at the uh, State Department Institute. And they flew me into Amman, Jordan, originally, and then right into Baghdad. And they stuck on a helicopter. This was in the, um, actually November... Uh, 2008, and um, I flew into Baghdad on a C-130 cargo plane, and they put me on a helicopter and flew me up to northern Iraq, just below the Kurdish area, the three provinces that make up the Kurdish regional government, and they, uh, I was in a place called Kirkuk. I was on an American military base that used to be an Iraqi military base. And it was now called Bob Warrior, and um, it was a big base. It was uh, about 4,000 people, uh, American soldiers, um, Army, Air Force, and Navy, Um, and we used that as a base to go out from um, pretty much every day. Um, My main goal was, as a governance specialist, was to go help the local people developed democratic institution so it was uh part peace corps and part part military i went out with uh, four MRAPs, mine resistant ambush proof vehicles um uh, six days a week and we went out and it was dangerous um there were ieds improvised explosive devices and some of the places we went to was uh um they had their insurgency groups. They weren't called ISIS at the time, and they weren't even called Al-Qaeda at the time. There was um, there were all kinds of different groups that um, had been fighting going back to the early 1900s when they were fighting the British. So they were used to fighting whoever they thought were the occupiers.
2: And at the time, we were the occupiers, and as far as the Kurdish, what type of government... Did the Kurds have there? I mean, once Saddam was overthrown, which would have been a number of years earlier, what what, yeah, what would have been so, happening in the interim?
1: So they they have a um, uh, like a um, I guess a confederation. It would be the best way to do it. They have based on the uh, constitution that the Americans helped write for them in two thousand and three. Um, they could decide if they wanted to, different provinces, or what we would call states, could agree to go in together and form a a federation. And so what they did is the three provinces in the very north of Iraq went together, and that was, from there on after, was is still called the KRG, the Kurdish Regional Government. And um, they have a president who's elected by all three provinces together. They also have separate provincial governments. And that was right above me. Now, uh, one of the things you said was uh, it reminded me that I used to go out with American Army, um, some captains and lieutenants, and we'd go up to some of these small villages, and I'd meet a mayor that the U.S. Army had helped elect, and there'd be a map behind them on the wall in their office and it would be this i did not recognize it and with my interpreter who spoke kurdish um i'd say what is this map and they would tell me that is kurdistan Uh. and i'd say kurdistan i don't know what kurdistan is and it was a map that had sections of turkey iraq iran and syria and it went. It spread all across that that section of the world, and that was their dream to have. Uh, sometime in the future, the, the the country of Kurdistan.
2: And these would have been all areas in which Kurds are, are are an ethnic majority, or at least close to it. I would assume, correct?
1: That is correct. But as as we all have learned, um, and it was a hard lesson to learn, is. Um, one of the theories was that why don't we just break Iraq up into the Sunni the Shia and the Kurd right Well it turns out there's Arabs who live in the Kurdish area there's Kurds who live downtown Baghdad um, it's not a clean cut um, what what some people call ethnic cleansing you can't really draw the lines because there are people from other ethnicities and religions for that matter. Um, work by, by, This is a. We've all heard about Yazidis now, right? Um, I met Yazidis up in uh, Kirkuk province, and there this, were this was the
2: this was the ethnic minority that had to go and hide on the mountaintop when ISIS was Mount slaughtering them. Jar. exactly. That's, that's exactly. correct. Which Doug, was. Yeah. Doug, we got to take a quick break. Can you hang on yeah. for another two minutes? Sure. Great. Thanks sure. very much. We're going to do a couple of announcements. We'll be right back.
3: Uh, my name is Lee Weber, and I've got Doug Teeper with me. Thanks very much. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com.
1: Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio.
4: on call.org or call toll free 1-800-714-6993 today.
0: You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
2: My name is Lee Weber, and I'm sitting in for Greg Williams today on Greg's List Live. And uh, we've been talking a little bit about uh, Islam and ISIS and the terrorist attacks around the world. And um, one of the things that, that we've seen in the last couple of days is terrorist attacks occurring in primarily majority Muslim countries, including in Saudi Arabia, in Medina. Uh, which is the second holiest city in Islam, uh, a bombing at the uh, mosque of the prophet where Muhammad is uh, rumored to have been buried. And one of the arguments I've been making for a long time, in, in this, and I was making this even before you had ISIS attacking in majority Muslim countries, is that the root of this problem is not Islam as a religion. It actually is ISIS as a group and al-Qaeda as a group. Uh, and I think you can obviously see the fact that now they're blowing up their own people. What happened in in Medina over the weekend would be, Similar to Christians attacking St. Peter's in Rome. So it's very becoming very difficult for those who are arguing that the problem is a religion which to which one point three billion people adhere uh, and not, uh, folks who, uh, use the religion in the wrong way. So, uh, with me we have my, my friend Doug Teeper. Uh, Doug was attached to the State Department and worked in northern Iraq with the Kurds, who also, again, are Muslim, uh, for three years helping their set up, set up their governing system, uh, from 2008 until, uh, 2011. Doug, I want to pivot just briefly and talk about this argument that I've had an awful lot on social media, and it, and it kind of came from, Personal experience I had in different parts of the world, in majority Muslim countries, or in countries with significant Muslim populations. Also, uh, reading there's a there's a great book called The Ottoman Centuries, which I've probably read uh, three or four times. Uh, it was written in the 50s by uh, Lord Kinross, who's a Brit who had traveled widely in the region, and it traces the the 800 year history of the Ottoman Empire, uh, which actually was a uh, was a place where Christians and Jews and other people. Did business and worked in the government, and and it was a, a peaceful. It was an empire, so we're still talking about imperialism. Uh, but I think that this argument that that Islam is at the root of the problem uh, causes two two significant problems cause your problem domestically because you've got to get american voters to buy into what i think should be a brutal and unremitting war against isis um we're not doing anywhere near enough over there and the other group you've got to convince is uh, you've got to get a majority of americans and right now you've probably got about half or less who are buying into this islam is the root of the problem So you've got to get another 20 or 30 percent of Americans. And if you go after ISIS, both rhetorically and militarily, rather than criticizing uh, the religion of, of Islam, you're going to pick up enough to make uh, the American populace get behind you. And of course, the other issue you've got is you've got to do your fighting in majority Muslim countries, and it's going to be very difficult to get them on board as allies. So why don't you talk a little bit about, from your time with the Kurds, who we should be arming, who are the only group that has had significant battlefield success against ISIS, talk to us about the Kurds in relation to them being Muslims and in relation to ISIS being Muslims and, and that dynamic you saw in the three years you spent in northern Iraq next to Syria.
1: Uh, thanks, Lee. And, and you're making some very good points. I, I do want to point out, we, when, when we left off, I was we had mentioned the Yazidis. Um, where I lived, there was also a Christian community. There was Assyrian Christians. We would call them Arabs. Um, but they, um, they, they sometimes are called Chaldeans up in that part of the world. And and I
2: have, I have a Jesus friend who's Chaldean from, here in Atlanta.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and we were dependent, a very good point that you make, we uh, were dependent on Arabs, Muslim Arabs, Christian Arabs, and some of the Kurdish folks and the Yazidis for information to track the uh, bad guys. When we were going after the insurgents, we needed allies on the other side, the the local folks. And therefore, we couldn't vilify all Muslims. That would eliminate our sources of intelligence who were leading us to the bad guys. And, I mean, sometimes we had to go in with bombing or actually, um, you know, the military says, and, and I don't really say this, but uh, I was there for two and a half years. I did something like 500 combat missions, and which is an incredible number if I think about it. I don't like to think about it, but we were dependent <laughs> on local folks to tell us which house had the Bad guys in it, right? So it it, it it goes right to your point, Lee. And, and, and uh, I
2: know there, I, I know that from our our other talks that you know you've had a number of uh, folks you work with over there who were Kurds in the government who have been killed uh, since you left there. And that, isn't well, that right?
1: Well, not just Kurds. We had uh, another ethnicity called Turkmen. The mayor of Kirkuk. Uh, soon after I left was assassinated. A guy on a motorcycle rode up next to him. He was leaving City Hall and, and put a bullet in his head. Uh, I've had uh, several other mayors and police chiefs who have been killed by ISIS. And these were these were Muslims. Um, they were um, Kurds, Muslims, and Christians. And these were these and are so, folks you
2: worked with on a daily basis, helping them set up their yes, government
1: doing do yes, things. Very, uh, b- before I left, I actually, uh, a tribal leader, um, one of the great stories uh, in the Middle East, of course, is old feuds that go back a thousand years. So there were Sunni Arabs uh, there were two tribes up where I was the Jabaris and the Obeides. and it's a little bit like the Hatfields and the McCoys <laughs> and they're they're the same religion they're they are they are Arabs they're Sunni Arabs and they were constantly fighting with each other and while I was there uh, the mayor of a uh, town called Multaka which I think in Arabic means crossroads um, he was shot and you know you never could get a straight answer about who Killed him. I was invited to the funeral, which I was honored to go to. Um, he he had this great name, in which uh, the English translation was "Father of the Sword," and um, he was he was a little guy. He had one arm. He had been blown up. With other Muslims uh, because he worked with the Americans, right? And right. so we had medevacked him to. Um, one of the um, um, military hospitals up in northern Iraq, and they amputated his arm. And he loved us. He said we saved his life, and that he would do anything for us. And he did. And he—they ultimately somebody. Somebody killed him.
2: So, so what would you say? Because I mean, I, there are some very smart people who are my friends on on social media, and most of these actually are real world friends. Many of them going all the way back to to college, who are very smart, very well read people who take a very deep interest in foreign affairs. And it's been very difficult. Some of whom, you know, have traveled overseas. I don't know if they've been to some of the places that you and I have, but but have traveled overseas significantly enough to get exposure to other cultures. And every time we have a terrorist attack they start waving the anti-islam flag and, and as i made the argument earlier you know i understand the argument i don't agree that that's the proper strategy going forward to convince a, American voters to get behind a much larger campaign against ISIS, and B, to get uh, the folks that you w- dealt with on a daily basis or the leaders of these Muslim na- nations to al- agree to allow us to put troops in their country and to do what we need to do over there. What would be your argument to very smart people who continue to exist t- to insist that Islam is really the problem?
1: Well, Lee, I think we all know that when situations as complicated as they are like, like over there, It's very um, easy to simplify it. Shia versus Sunni, um, which are both Muslims, that was not the problem. There were were people, there were families. Oh, by the way, one of the things that I was not aware of when I went over there, I had heard that many Muslim men had four wives. Right. And I figured that would be out in the rural areas and... um, that was maybe a throwback kind of thing. Right. It's not. Many of them do have four <laughs> wives, and um, in fact, the mayor I was talking about, um, who uh, got got killed, he had two Kurdish wives. He had a Turkmen wife and he had a Sunni Arab wife. So obviously,
2: this this division within Islam does not uh, does not necessarily extend to under the family home. We've got about a minute left. I'll go, give us give us a quick thirty seconds on on what we should be doing with the Kurds. Is it money? Is it arms? Is it closer cooperation? What are the keys to getting the Kurds to help us defeat ISIS? Since they've had by far the most battlefield success
3: against them.
1: Yeah, I, I think we definitely need to be involved and going straight after the terrorists. We have the how uh, we have the experience and the training to target the terrorists, and we have to go in and kill them. And we have to work. We can't do it ourselves. We have to make sure that the Iraqi security forces are involved in it. Now, we need to support them with weapons and training, but uh, we definitely need to go straight for the heart of the terrorists. Right,
3: right. That makes
2: sense. Listen, Doug, I really appreciate you joining us. Thank you for your insight.
1: All right. Thank you, Lee. Uh, my Happy name is... Happy 4th of July.
2: Thank you. Happy 4th of July to you, too, Doug. Well, listen, I've really enjoyed this uh, this hour today. I'd like to thank Greg, wherever he is in Italy. I don't know if he's going to be there uh, through this weekend. You've got the semifinals of the European uh, the European soccer tournament that's going on. We've got four teams left, and Italy is one of them. So hopefully Greg will be fortunate enough to stay over there and witness some of that insanity. Uh, That game, I believe, either is Friday, Saturday, or Sunday. I don't know which. But I'd like to thank Greg again. I'd like to thank David Moxley. And like to thank all of you for listening here on America's Web Radio. Uh, My name is Lee Weber. And hopefully Greg will have me back either as a guest or to sub for
0: him at another time. Uh, God bless you all and have a good day. You're listening to
4: AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.